Hi, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This podcast is produced and recorded in the studios of WUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. I don't know if you're like me, but um, especially of an evening or on a weekend or maybe even during the workday, you might get on social media and do what uh, some people call the death scroll. Uh, it's a way that I fall asleep, and maybe you have different purposes for it. But, you know, inside the world of social media that can have, you know, a lot of negatives to it, there's also a lot of positive potential in ways that teachers can use social media for their own professional development. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Dr. Jen Newton is an associate professor in the Patton College of Education uh, at Ohio University. Jen's specialization is in special education and specifically topics related to anti-racist pedagogy, anti-ableism, early childhood inclusion, and inclusive teacher preparation. Jen, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So the reason I wanted to have you on, uh, you and a co-author, Myra Cole Williams, uh, recently published an article in the journal of Special Education Technology titled Instagram as a Special Educator Professional Development Tool, a Guide to Teachergram. I was immediately intrigued by that because, um, you know, I, I, I'm not on the inside of K-12 education professional development programs, but with a daughter that is teaching at that level and, and just my general knowledge of it, I know that professional development is a really critical aspect for teachers, um, especially as we want to keep them in the profession. Um, and so I wanted to talk to you about how, you know, social media can be used for this. Can you kind of start, though, by setting the stage for why you think special education professional development is such a critical need right now um, in, inside that part of the teaching profession? Because more and more students are identified as having support needs, because fewer and fewer students are accessing their education in the ways in which we have sort of normalized it and standardized it. Mm -hmm. And the ways that we think about supports has become problematic in the sense that we think that independence in educational access, educational success is the goal rather than using the tools mm -hmm. that are made available to us in order for us to use them to learn and show what we know. So in special education specifically, which is you know, the bifurcated system of education is already problematic, right, right. right? We have to have a re a realignment of what the intention of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act is and how we're implementing it. And so special education is supposed to be specially designed instruction in the general education classroom. It's not supposed to be a place. It's not supposed to be a curriculum. It's not supposed to be a separate thing, um, but it is in, in lots of ways. And so the professional development has to, oftentimes teachers will tell you, special ed teachers, music teachers, PE teachers, anyone that's outside the general education corridor mm -hmm. will tell you that the professional development offered by the district isn't helpful. Mm -hmm. It doesn't give them things they can apply immediately. And teachers, despite, you know, public opinion, are voraciously working to provide uh, opportunities for their students that they can access and be successful. I mean, teachers are looking for help. Mm -hmm. And so that piece of it is that is that desire to try to fill a gap that they know is existing, right? And I think that's true of gen ed teachers too. They know there are kids they're not reaching. And so they're always looking for opportunities to learn something that they don't know. Mm -hmm. For, for uh, people that are in special education, um, I wanna just tease this out just a little bit more. I, I think many of the listeners uh, will understand this, but for people that maybe are not inside the teaching profession, maybe wouldn't get this as well. Um, if I'm a special ed teacher in a school district, First of all, I'm probably one of 
maybe two or three. Uh, is that fair? I mean, obviously, it depends on the size of the district. But like where we're we're at in rural at in rural Ohio, one you know in the building, per, I might be it right per building. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and when professional development happens, um, a lot of times that might take place you know in a formal. Um, systematic setting like during a uh, during an in-service day. Um, the programming for that is usually dictated um, and and oftentimes, as you said, is more oriented towards the general classroom. And so if I'm a special ed teacher, am I just kind of sitting there and it's not really, I mean, it's relevant, but not as directly relevant to what I'm doing on a daily basis. Is right. that fair? Yeah, that's very fair. And it's always hard, like for instance, in our district, Friday's the end of the quarter. And Monday, they have the teachers have professional development mm-hmm. district wide, and then Tuesday they're back with students. And so, how do they have time to yeah. think about what they could pull from it, talk with their teammates, implement something? Um, there is no sort of process in yeah. place. So that idea of like a sit and get, get what you can, grab what works for you, and then get back out there, it just isn't. Um, providing those adult learning strategies mm-hmm. and, and the the sort of intentionality of follow through, and and every there's so many teachers that don't feel seen or heard in those settings. It's not to say that they're bad. That's like what you know. That's districts are doing the best yeah. they can. Yeah. Um, like for instance, right now with the push to SOR, they're having that to um, the science of reading curriculum. They're having to do a lot of professional development that's mm-hmm. school wide, right? But the in, the intricacies of how it applies for individual teachers, we haven't built space for that. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of teachers go to social media. And, you know, one of the points um, that you overviewed in the article is the need for professional development to be ongoing. Uh, And that's, and as you said, it's not the fault of the district. I'm sure every district is doing the best that they can, but those types of quick hitters are not ongoing, right? Right, yeah. So so let's transition and and talk a little bit about... um, teacher gram. Um, I'm going to make the assumption that most listeners will understand what Instagram is, but but of course, assumptions are always the root of, of mistakes, right? So Instagram is a social media platform that is for everyone, right? Um, and many of us have personal accounts on Instagram where we follow friends, family, um, and maybe topics of interest. Teacher gram is... I, this is where my language is going to break down, and you might have to help me a little bit. Teachergram is a self-created uh, by teachers part of Instagram. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of talk through what I just said and maybe put it in your own language? Absolutely. So Instagram started right as a as a photo sharing mm-hmm. app, and it was early on in the days of you know filters, and you could take a picture, make it prettier, and post it and share with your friends. Then when we introduced hashtags, people started creating affinity groups. Um, there, Black Lives Matter is a perfect example of this, mm-hmm. right? That hashtag started on Twitter but moved to Instagram so that people could create shared experiences and find people with liked um, similar interests, similar obje- objectives. Teachers did this. They did that as well. So they created hashtags like we are teachers, hashtag teachers of Instagram, and started finding each other. And building community, um, building solidarity, you know, engaging in conflict, disagreeing, mm-hmm. selling things. I mean, that's a huge part yeah. of teacher gram. Um, and the, the affinity group 
does what all groups do. And, you know, some people rise to the top and become leaders in in some spaces. If you remember um, back, I don't remember what year it was, but the there was some conversation uh, politically about arming teachers mm-hmm. during, as a result of some increase in school shootings. And the teacher gram leaders also, you know, mm-hmm. those people with large, large followings. I mean, there's teachers that have 175,000 followers. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's big. Um, started the arm me with hashtag saying, and they really got a lot of teachers to post about, like, army with school supplies, army mm-hmm. with counselors, army with funds, army with more teachers, army with planning time. And it creates, you know, a social movement. Mm-hmm. And so the ways that people engage are different. So like you said, some people just use their personal accounts and they follow people and they engage. It's pretty compelling because you can you can direct message. Mm-hmm. someone and you can ask for resources or you can ask for a link or you can ask for support or you can just say hey thanks for helping me with this you know thanks for your content and so there's a little bit more of that ability to directly access people that you're learning from or to to build community around similar things even mm-hmm. if it's just like a curricular unit you might share it and have other people make it better um, and for me I have a personal account but I also have a professional account I teach an introduction to special ed course, which is a standard course that everyone has in teacher preparation. And I share all of my resources for that course. And then other teacher educators that follow me also share. And we have a communal Google folder of an anti-ableist version of that class that doesn't really exist anywhere else. But when new faculty are coming into the pipeline, they're often tasked with teaching that class. And the way it's built right now is very, I mean, traditionally built, is that it's very focused on deficits. It's very focused on mm-hmm. the medical model. We've created a different way of teaching that class. And that those resources are open for anyone to use and um, if they, you know, happen upon them. Mm-hmm. So those are like some of the benefits of engaging in that space. You were talking about some of the, um, <clears throat> some of the accounts. So I think it's interesting to, to note that that some individuals will have both personal accounts for their family, friends, and then they will have maybe what we would call a teacher grant account or a professional account where they do this work that is more oriented towards a, a task outcome. Um, when, when, if, I, if I'm a new teacher and I want to get involved in this community, um, it's not like there's a geographic location I can go on Instagram to find it. How do I go about, you know, sort of discovering influencers that have good information like you or, you know, other uh, groups of people that are having discussions relevant to my needs. How do I go about finding that on Instagram? Usually through hashtags Mm -hmm. or through people who's like if you if your school did a book study, Mm -hmm. you can find that author and that and, you know, that team and see who they're following. So it's the same as we track research through like mm-hmm. going to the references, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and backward tracking. Yeah. That's how it works there too. The hashtags, um, there's a, and I don't prefer this language, but there is a hashtag, um, we are sped. And that has a lot of special ed teachers that follow it and use it and tag it. You can follow a tag or a hashtag. So if you find a hashtag that generates like-minded folks for you, you can follow that hashtag. So it'll show up in your feed anytime someone uses that hashtag. So those kind of affinity groups form that way. When I started, I have um, a professional teacher 
Instagram account called Teaching is Intellectual. Mm -hmm. And when I started it, I went through and followed like 5,000 teachers just every just to get a sense of the landscape mm -hmm. and to figure because I didn't know this was happening. Yeah. When I first started all of this, I didn't know that that's where teachers were getting information. The belief in teacher preparation was that most of it was Pinterest-based. Mm -hmm. um, but what I learned once I got into the community is that Pinterest was pulling from Instagram. Mm. And so that was a mechanism for selling things. But the information sharing and the two-way communication happens on social media, not on like a pinboard kind of site. Mm -hmm. So that has made a big difference in terms of trying to find people, right? And then um, – I think, too, people will recommend – what I know from my students is that they'll be following someone that was recommended by a teacher mm -hmm. or recommended by someone they know. And that's like a gateway into finding other people. Um, this is a side note. I want to come back to this. But I always learn about use of language whenever I talk with you. Why is it that you do not prefer that hashtag? Because SPED is a slur. Mm. Um, we've used it to label children um, rather than to the idea behind special education isn't, you know, that it's a child. A child is not an IEP. A child is a kid who needs supports and services. And you mm -hmm. and I both benefit from supports. We're both mm -hmm. sitting here with our eyeglasses on, right? right? right. Um, so that we can see each other. And so the idea of SPED which is really just the the letters we use at the beginning of our courses, you know, mm -hmm, right. um, is not is not a collective term mm -hmm. that we should be using to talk about our field or our work or the children we serve. And so, um, you know, I wish they would move away from it. The community knows how I feel about it. Yeah. What <laughs> language would you use? Uh, I, I like to say that we're educators, mm -hmm. um, interventionists sometimes, mm -hmm. but I don't think that's everything special ed teachers do. Um, I would like for us to move. I mean, in Ohio, we're working in this direction to move away from special ed and gen ed to an inclusive license mm -hmm. that allows teachers to be prepared for all the students that come into their classroom and to really understand the system that the law has put into place around who's eligible, how assessments work, how our planning works, how IEP implementation happens. That's really important for all teachers mm -hmm. to know and to be able to do because, we're again, to your initial question, we're seeing more and more kids who are benefiting from supports or at least being identified as needing them. Um, in our region, in some of our districts that are, you know, a stone's throw around us, we're seeing upwards of 40% of kids identified. Yeah. And um, we need to really dig into that and really understand why so many kids are getting identified and what it is that getting identified gives them mm -hmm. that we wouldn't otherwise be providing at the tier one instruction or universal instruction level. Um, because to me, it's more of a failure to meet the general needs of our school populations than it is to provide additional supports for kids at that yeah, degree, yeah. right? 40% of kids <clears throat> is too many. Yeah, yeah. And it overwhelms whoever the person is in the building. Right. Yeah. And if, if the issue is like truancy mm -hmm. or if the issue is um, – you know, inconsistent attendance or special education services and supports aren't built to provide that intervention, right? We have other right, right. wraparounds for that. But because of this idea of what SPED is, mm -hmm. it becomes like the the bucket for- The catch-all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and I would like us to right-size that yeah. and have 
more robust conversations about the difference between disability and poverty and, mm-hmm. um, you know, communal supports and what our community offers and and better engage in really addressing the needs of kids in our communities. Yeah, absolutely. You use the phrase affinity group. Um, another term like that that is oftentimes used in uh, pro- uh, professional development, you know, settings uh, is community of practice. How do you distinguish between those two? And what do you think that affinity groups, especially online affinity groups, offer that maybe a, a conventional view of community practice would not? Oh, I love that question. I think affinity groups are a little looser. Mm-hmm. Um, you can enter in and, and ebb and flow in an affinity group. Identities change. Needs change. Like the, the needs that people have from a group might change. Whereas communities of practice, in my experience in education, are more intentional mm-hmm. um, and more planful. Right, we might have a group decision on what we're going to tackle next, or what conversations we're going to have, or how we're going to talk. Whereas affinity groups in social media, at least, are much more fluid and less structured. People can opt in on their participation or opt out. Right? Um, people often want to talk to me about the size of my account, how how it grows. How what they don't see is that I lose hundreds of followers every week. Yeah. Right, and that's fine. Like people come and go. Um, that's okay. The communities of practice are a little more um, fixed, I think, in my experience. And affinity groups obviously offer um, the ability to have, uh, well, affiliation with people that are very geographically, culturally different, uh, correct? Yes, absolutely. And you might opt into an affinity group based on a desire to learn Mm -hmm. rather than an identification with the identities within that group. So, you know, to keep the Black Lives Matter example going, there are lots of people who will follow that affinity group and align to that affinity group who don't have those identity markers Mm -hmm. um, because they're learning, because they're accessing the the content that's provided there. And that's okay too. And sometimes our communities of practice are a little, like they're restricted to people who serve in this particular capacity or have this particular job or educational community. And so I think that's also part of it. They're they're less fixed. They're just always Mm -hmm. kind of changing. And people are looking for different things at different times, right? We just had Columbus Day and there was a real uptick in indigenous um, accounts and people were promoting and following, you know, more indigenous educators. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, And and so when things pop up, affinity groups allow you to kind of engage when you're ready. When um, you you look at both Maybe, maybe even talking about communities of practice is not important now, given the topic of your of your article. But do you think that both um, affinity groups and communities of practice are trying to zero in on on the phrase best practices? Do you th- do you like that term, or do you think that affinity groups are, again, like you said, a little bit looser in terms of of opening up practices that we don't know if they're best or not? Yeah, I think that yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I'm very involved in my professional organization. We definitely talk about best practice. We've tried to move into more recommended practices. Mm -hmm. But the affinity groups give you that perspective that what is best for any particular child might not have been something that's identified in the research yet, right? Our research around, particularly in my field, is very specific to a certain line of medical and psychological background. 
you know, now we have a lot of disabled people who are engaging in their own affinity grouping mm-hmm. and they're doing their own advocacy and, and educational outreach work. And their voices have not typically been included in the research around best practice mm-hmm. in special education, particularly about education of diverse kids. And now that we're sort of introducing more, that's where I come in with the anti-ableist perspective, is that sometimes best practices as determined by the field, are the most loathed practices Mm -hmm. by the disabled community, right? And so part of what I do is try to get my students to think about and learn from disabled people and be willing to consider the social validity factor that we have long not incorporated into our research base. And so I think it's a good example of how the research is serving a very specific purpose and maybe the affinity groups are serving an equally valid purpose right. in helping us to consider what whose who's version of what works mm-hmm. is being valued here, right? Who gets to say what works? Um, and I love that. Yeah. I think that's very cool. Uh, what do you mean by anti-ableism? I should have asked you that before. Um, a- ableism is a system much like racism, but um, it's more explicit in our society right now. Well, I probably shouldn't say it's more explicit. Racism is plenty explicit. But um, in education, we have a very explicitly ableist system. So ableism is fundamentally the idea that um, some people have less value than others based Mm -hmm. on the basis of disability. And in our system of education, for instance, with I'm, I'm in early childhood. And so when children are born, if they are considered to be have a disability or be at risk of developing a disability, they're automatically tracked into an intervention system. Mm -hmm. They're identified under Part C of IDEA, and they're receiving services and supports where they transition into a generally segregated preschool program for three-year-olds that all have identified disabilities and service and support needs. And then they kind of stay on that trajectory. Um, Versus, right, an anti-ableist system, which provides for kids to be who they are with mm-hmm. the with the expectation that we don't know what they're capable of yeah. and that they're not broken. We don't need to fix them. We need to fix the environment and create a place where the barriers are removed so that kids can really thrive um, rather than putting more barriers in place. So anti-ableism is the idea that the child is not the problem. The environment is the problem. Right. Um, with Teacher Graham, the topics are so diverse that you would be able to, you know, access, you know, once you get into the bubble, I'm just going to call it the bubble for lack of a better term. Um, what, what advice do you have for, for teachers uh, that want to start getting involved? So they probably have an Instagram account. Most of us do. They want to start getting involved in, in sort of exploring this, getting their feet wet. Um, What's the best way to go about doing that? I mean, you've mentioned, you know, looking for hashtags, but I mean, do you think there's a strategy that people should use rather than just a positive version of death scrolling, right? What what strategies are effective? Well, there's plenty of death scrolling on <laughs> Teachergram too. Um, well, follow me and then follow everyone mm-hmm. I follow. That's the best advice. Yeah. Um, I would say follow broadly. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest mistakes that new teachers make is following huge accounts only, Mm -hmm. Um, like 50,000, you know, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Follow lots of little accounts of people who are just plugging away every day and they don't post all the time because they're really busy teaching kids and not creating content. There are also some things to stay away from. Stay away from people who post pictures of children 
in their class. Um, stay away from people who are focused a lot on how to manage kids' behaviors. So if there's a lot of systems of shame on their on their posts, you know, unfollow them. Um, stick with people who are really genuinely excited about trying to improve the field. Negativity spreads wildly on social media as you know, mm-hmm. it does in real life. So the complexities of being in a school and understanding the politics of that, it's very similar on TeacherGram. So I really advise young students, young teachers to stay away from the negative accounts. There are some um, large, huge meme accounts like we are or like board teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they post a lot of stuff that teachers resonate with. They also post a lot of stuff that I think is counter to yeah. um what we're all here to do. And I think you can control the amount of negativity that mm-hmm. you absorb. And if you're in a school all day and you know what it's like to to deal with that negativity, don't do it on your social media. Find accounts that lift you up, that give you hope, that make you feel empowered. And they do exist. I mean, yeah. there are lots of them. There are really cool people out there. The other thing I would encourage for anybody, anybody who works in education is to follow disabled people. Mm. Um, I have a list on my teacher teacher Instagram called anti-ableist accounts to follow, and I, I should pin it, actually, um, where and it's just full of, of disabled people who talk about their educational experience, what went well, what didn't, what, you know, they wish they could have had, what they wish people knew. And I think that's a really important perspective for anybody who is working in schools because we hear a lot of negative about kids' needs. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to humanize the lived experience of kids who are struggling in yeah, school. Totally. Yeah, totally. Um, when in the article, um, you you document how you and your co-author um, were able to access and interact with um, uh, over a thousand teachers that use TeacherGram. What were some of the insights that you drew from learning how other teachers were using it, the effects that it was having on them, et cetera? It's been such an amazing experience. You know, I've been, I just hit 20,000 followers this past week and I got cake. So it was, <laughs> I a, saw that on, I saw that on, on Instagram actually. Yeah. It was a very big moment yeah. for me. Um, and it's taken me what, six, seven years to get there. That's a long time mm-hmm. in TeacherGram content to get that kind of following. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because it's complicated. You know, people don't always want to hear how the systems can need to change, right? They want more to feel like they're validated mm-hmm. in how hard and miserable it can be. Um, and I, I think that's a really interesting phenomenon, the, the ways in which we look for, because like we said with affinity groups, sometimes just misery is an affinity group. Yeah. Um, there's, an, there's a meme account called Misery, misery Teachers, right? And... Um, and I rail against those accounts because it's, mm-hmm. it's not healthy for the profession. But what I was missing as a teacher educator is that this is what my students are getting. This mm-hmm. is what they're accessing. This is what they're seeing. And not a day goes by that some one of my students doesn't send me a TikTok or an Instagram reel from a teacher talking about why they quit or, you know, and they're saying, is this what I'm in for? Is this what's going to happen? And I have to show them 10 other TikToks, yeah. Yeah. right, of but that's the that's where they're getting their content. And until I was active, I couldn't understand it. And so now I see it so much more clearly about 
the forces that are influencing them and that are sort of taking up space in their heads. And it helps me to counteract it more actively, yeah. right? We can talk about what's happening in the discourse today. If there's a viral a reel or TikTok going around about teachers, not only will they have sent it to me, but so will, you know, 40 people on Instagram will have sent it to me. And then we, I show it to them and we talk about it. Mm-hmm. And we unpack it and we are, when we think about what might be going on there. But I think not doing that um, – and it took me a long time. I didn't talk about this in my academic work until about two years ago. And my close friends were like, you need to put this in your CV. You need to put it in your dossier when you go up for tenure. And I was like, I'm not doing that. That's It's not real scholarship. Mm-hmm. It's service to the field almost in my mind. Um and now I'm kind of seeing that, like, it's dissemination. Yeah. It is dissemination of research. A lot of what I create, I am trying to get them, like, bites of research that they can't access on their own. And then I always put the article in a Google folder for them if yeah. they want to read the whole thing. Um, so I think that I've learned a lot more from Teachergram than I've taught yeah. <laughs> from it because it's a whole – it's a whole ecosystem Mm -hmm. that in teacher education in particular, we should be a lot more aware of. I think school and district administrators should be more aware of where teachers are getting their information. I think there's a network of people that like the professional development days that we were talking about that um, districts pull from. And those are not people who have the kind of, you know, cachet that the teachers are following and learning from in other spaces. So now we're seeing like lots of people with huge followings get book contracts. They get, mm-hmm. you know, because they're they're saying things that are universally um, appealing in a field. It's not as many sort of academics writing a book and doing professional development yeah. that's guiding the field anymore. Well, I mean, like, you know, if you think about it, like um, there is a – I'm going to use my analogy of administration and education, right? There is a career track for that that is very official. And by by role, you have followers, right? And then in social media, you have influencers. And the followers for influencers like you, you know, comes from people buying into, you know, the messages. And it's entirely grassroots driven. And, you know, just kind of thinking about the implications of that, the official the official influencers that are, are people in administration, like myself, I mean, don't get me wrong, um, you know, we th- there is more of a reason to reify the existing structure than there is in the grassroots, you know, movement that you would find online. I mean, I, I think that's fair. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. And I think that that it, it brings in, in and of itself this teachers have access to so much more information and thought partners. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how I see my role really in that regard is just a thought partner. You know, every day I get D I respond to every single person who DMs Mm -hmm. me unless they aren't actually engaged me. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, you can be mean. I'll respond to that, but not if you're like, you know, threatening me. Um, but I, I think it's about being a thought partner for people. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes when people are struggling with seeing ableism actively in their schools, hearing it from you know, teachers, administrators, and they don't know how to respond to that, they might message me and say, okay, here's a situation. Can you help me talk through it? I don't claim to have answers, mm-hmm. but I will help you think. And yeah. and it gets me thinking and it gives me perspective about how I engage when I provide 
those one-off professional developments and also with my students. Um, and I'm very transparent with them about that because I think we're all learning and it's a practice-based field. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert, but having access to 20,000 teachers every day gives me a much bigger perspective about the field than if I'm in my office here in Athens <laughs> and I'm only kind of operating in our bubble. You know? Yeah. And so I'm really grateful for the community there. And I wouldn't I don't know if I would have said that a couple of years ago, but I think it's it's a powerful tool. And I think through the pandemic in particular, we really needed um, the opportunity to learn together and and vent together too. Yeah, and and you know, to to the point that you made earlier, having people that have similar affinities, um, to know that you're not isolated and alone um, in, in your thought. In, in your action and your deeds um, is really important for people. And and despite the fact that you might have wonderful colleagues, that doesn't mean that they're with you on, on your own personal journey, but you might find that online, right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, we used to say like, hey, did you read this book? Have you read this? And we would recommend books to each other mm-hmm. as teachers, right? And now one, who has time? Yeah. Um, but two, people can get information in a more ongoing basis more quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I do see them exchanging Instagram and TikTok handles more readily. Um, and some of it is just humor and and community building. And every, I mean, I my, my account is called Teaching as Intellectual. I am trying to provide an intellectual basis mm-hmm. for the field. I am not a funny person, but I love that there are people who are just clowning mm-hmm. and building community around the fact that you know, funny things happen in schools and like it's a funny job to have. And it creates community in lots of ways, mm-hmm. not just learning, but also we're in it together. And, you know, when you're in a climate politically that teachers are right now, they need each other. Yeah. And Instagram has, or and TikTok have filled a void mm-hmm. that our communities haven't been able to provide. So um, Teachergram sounds awesome, right? We should all get on it. And any of us that are in the classroom should be, uh, should be exploring it. You do give some cautions in the article about especially how affinity groups uh, in spaces like this, that there could be potential unintended consequences of, you know, going all in and buying all in. What are some of those warnings that you would have for people? One is content collapse. So Instagram, for instance, is available on the internet. You don't have to be on the app. So if you just go to Instagram.com backslash teaching is intellectual, you can see everything I've posted, which means that people who aren't in my group, my my community, don't know me, um, aren't engaged with like the fact that, you know, I might have posted in my stories this morning about dropping my coffee on my way in here or something. Um, they might just take a post out of context. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we live in an environment that can be really um, challenging to put ideas that are around equity, civil rights, uh, out into the public forum. And so I worry about teachers in that regard. And I know teachers worry too about consequences of posting related to, you know, even like right now with, with Hamas and Palestine and Israel, people are feeling a lot of anxiety about what they post. Um, and we've had that through George Floyd, Mm -hmm. definitely with, um, issues around race, but I'm definitely seeing more of that with ableism, too, that people are feeling less safe 
based on some of the laws that are passing. And that's valid because even if you have a private account, and I've told teachers over and over again in these moments to go private um, because then you can better control your community. Anything can get screenshotted. Anything can get sent. And when you are in a contentious school board environment, if you don't have tenure, there are there are real threats. And I think that is why the onus is on folks like me um, who are in a less of a dangerous position to be more vocal because a lot of teachers have to be very careful about the way they engage. And I have to talk to my students about that a lot. And all of us who are engaging with students should be talking with them about yeah. the ways that their social media uh, might be mined because nothing is really private. And it's hard for them to understand that um, because, you know, they think – if something on Snapchat disappears in 24 hours, it's gone. Yeah. And so we have to really be more intentional, I think, about teaching about that. I also think we should embrace the fact that students use their phones for everything instead of fighting it so much um, and help them see the supports that are available there and how it might serve them rather than always sort of thinking it's a distraction mm-hmm. or always thinking it's a negative, right? It's a powerful tool for information, but we have to know how to critically absorb it. And that's another caution is that critical literacy on Instagram is incredibly important. There are a lot of huge accounts that look really important, might even have a blue check that make you think this is information that I should implement, right? Cite your sources, make sure that you do your own homework Mm -hmm. before you start quoting somebody, (laughs) including me. Yeah. So um, I guess to end, um, you mentioned that uh, you've mentioned your own um, account. Uh, what's the handle for it? How do people follow it? At teaching is intellectual on Instagram. And it is does have a fake Facebook page where I just cross post mm-hmm. from Instagram. But um, a lot of folks from a certain generation are on Facebook only. Um, and then we do have a newsletter that comes out once a week. And so you can sign up there on my website, teachingisintellectual.com. Awesome. That, that actually raises a question. When you've been uh, <clears throat> interacting with teachers on Teachergram, is there a generational trend? Yes. Yeah. Very much. Yes. A lot. Uh, most con- I would say, I don't have data on this. Yeah. I would say that most <clears throat> of the content creators that are teachers are younger than 30. Mm-hmm. And most of the consumers of that content on Facebook are over 35, over 40. And on Instagram, I think there's a large variety of consumers ages, but creators and influencers are definitely very, are younger. Yeah. Makes sense. In the first 10 years of their careers. Yeah. Yeah. I think any of us that do work in social media would say that that rings true. So I feel like an elder. Yeah, 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 <laughs> totally. Um, Jen, it's been great having you on the podcast, and uh, best of luck with um, your own account. And maybe we'll be able to celebrate with a uh, cake in a few years when you reach uh, what would it be twenty? Uh, what did you just break? Twenty. Yeah. yeah, I think I told my family that we should just aim for twenty-five next because <laughs> I get ice cream cake from Dairy Queen, and it took like four years to get from ten to twenty. Yeah. So and maybe get, just five. You got to have ice cream cake more often. Than <laughs> yeah, that, right? exactly. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. My guest today has been Dr. Jen Newton. She's an associate professor in the Patton College of Education at Ohio University. Jen, it's been great having you on and take care of yourself. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. Our associate producer is Adam Rich, and our assistant producers are April Koska and Trinity Sweet. And special thanks to Emily Botaw for pinch hitting as our audio engineer today. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth. Thank you for listening. And if you want to reach out to the podcast, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or X. Or you can also email us at uh, teachingmatterspodcast at ohio.edu. And we'd love to hear from you. Take care and thanks for listening. Bye-bye.